Okay, I'm pulling away from the curb, which means it is time for another of our drive to work top-up classes. And this morning we're going to be continuing with GCSE, Women in the Ancient World, uh, the legendary women topic, and we're going to be talking about the abduction of the Sabine women. Um, a story which also involves a girl named Tarpeia, so we'll cover her as well. Um, this is the first of our Roman legends, um, but I think it's got some really interesting points of comparison and contrast with the Greek stories of Pandora and Helen, so I'm going to be bringing those up um, at some point this morning as well. So the story starts off um, the very earliest history of Rome as a city, and Romulus, Rome's first king, is got a bit of a problem because everyone who is in his city, pretty much everyone, uh, is a man. And he is worried that the first generation of Romans are going to be the last generation of Romans because there's no one to get married to, no one to have children with. Um, and so here's the kind of first really important thing to think about with how this myth presents women. It presents them as absolutely necessary for the survival of a city. Um, so they're, they're, they're accorded great importance, but the only reason why they are presented as absolutely necessary is because of their ability to conceive and bear children. So it's not so much that um, they are presented as necessary to like the fabric of a society, um, they are just necessary for its, its sort of physical continuation. Um, now this is an idea that was brought up in the Pandora myth, um, where Pandora came along and when she opened the jar out came all those sorts of horrible things like um, disease, old age and death and yet with her she brought um, the capacity to generate new life uh, in, her, in her body. Um, so again we have a myth that shows the importance of childbearing to um, a woman's role in the ancient world of myth. Um, Romulus tries to get some um, women to come to his city um, peacefully at first. He sends some messengers to neighbouring cities and invites them to um, give their daughters in marriage to some of the Roman men, and they all reject him. Um, and so he then comes up with this trick. He's going to invite all of these neighbouring cities to a festival, a kind of religious celebration in honour of one of the gods, Neptune, the sea god. Um, and because the neighbouring peoples are god-fearing and pious, um, many of them do go. And in particular, all of the people from um, all of the Sabines, a neighbouring uh, neighboring people called the Sabines, they all go. And Romulus, during this festival, gives a signal and then all of his uh, Roman men, who are prepared and in on the trick, they each grab a uh, maiden, a young woman, and they carry them off. They abduct them and take them back to their homes to be their wives. Um, and so again, we come up against this issue of, um, of consent when it comes to relationships between men and women in ancient myth. Um, we came up across this issue with the Helen story, where Helen's, um, Helen kind of didn't really have free choice 
to go with Paris because either Paris abducted her or the goddess Aphrodite um, manipulated her using using her her sort of divine powers into going with Paris, but kind of against her her free and willing consent. Um, and I think this is also an issue that comes up in the Pandora story because Pandora, after she's created, is given to Epimetheus as a wife. Um, but she's not been given free choice there. That happens because Zeus, king of the gods, wants it. And so I think what we're setting up here is a real trend that in these myths, we do not expect to see women making decisions about their own um, about their own bodies, uh, about who they marry. And I think this is perhaps reflective of Greek and Roman society more broadly, where it was not usual for a young girl to choose her husband, rather her father or the head of her household would choose it for her. Um, And so I think that's kind of what's happening here. We're not engaging really with the issue of, of freely given consent because it was not a particularly important part of Greek and Roman um, society and their understandings of um, romantic and physical relationships. So they abduct these women against their will. Um, when Livy, in his History of Rome, which is one of your prescribed sources, when he describes it, he describes the scene quite chaotically. So it seems as though you know the, the women are not... Um, uh, just sort of happy to, to have this happen to them, um, there's an amount of resisting. Um, and something else that Livy mentions, which I think is particularly interesting, he talks about how certain Roman men would grab whoever they happened to find. So it didn't matter who they had, just as long as it was a woman. Um, but then there was also... Um, some men who acted on behalf of others, on behalf of the noblemen. And it said that those people were trying to abduct the most beautiful women so that um, they could be the wives of these important noblemen. So once again, we get this issue of beauty beauty makes someone more desirable as a partner and that's come up before in the Helen story explicitly Paris wants her to be his um, his wife because she is the most beautiful woman in the world and um, it also comes up in the Pandora story when the gods are creating her they spend a lot of time making sure she is physically attractive so that Epimetheus will um, sort of be blinded by that and accept her. So again, another really clear trend is emerging that physical beauty is seen as a marker of value of a woman in these myths. So after the abduction, the women then are living essentially as kind of kidnapped wives in the homes of the Roman men. And Livy, in his History of Rome, tells us that um, that they are convinced to change their minds about their current situation by two things. One, Romulus, the king of Rome, goes round and explains to them all that it's not his fault that all this has happened, but actually it is the fault of um, it's the fault of the girl's parents because they were offered into marriage, but the girls did not um, 
willingly accepts that offer and so it is their own parents' fault um, that this has all happened. Uh, sorry, there's a, there's a bit of a traffic jam where I am and so I'm just trying to turn the car around. It's the danger of doing this podcast on my drive to work. Uh, hope I make it in time for registration. Okay, I've managed to do my turn in the road. Let's go the other way. Um, yeah, so the, uh, the women are sort of persuaded that it's their own parents' fault and Romulus, to kind of sweeten the deal, he says, I will give you guys, I'll make you Romans, essentially. Um, you will no longer be foreigners here, but you will be as Roman women and you'll have all of the rights and protections that that, um, that conveys. Um, and on top of that then, each of the women's abductors, I guess you could call them their husbands, but the people who abducted them, um, they also flatter the women. They say, oh, we acted because we, we just loved you so much. Our, our, our desire was too great. Um, and Livy seems to approve of this when he writes about it in his History of Rome. He says, this is the most effective way of appealing to a woman's heart. So, we've got this idea that the women um, are kind of... They want for the women to be willing members of the Roman state. They want to convince them that their current situation is good, and they want them to be happy, sort of. Um, but they also are using some quite manipulative uh, tactics, and they're not really... Um, kind of standing up to what it is that, that they have done, which is to abduct these women against their will. Um, the Roman men in the story, Romulus and, and the other Roman men, they don't seem to think that there is anything um, improper about the way they have um, kind of got these women to live with them. And I think that, again, really underscores the idea that um, a woman's consent is not valued in these ancient stories. Um, so we then change scene from what's going on in Rome to consider what's going on nearby to Rome, in these other cities that the women have been stolen from. And all of the families of the abducted women are very, very angry. And so what they do is they gang together and they are going to go to war against Rome to try and get their um, daughters back. Um, and they all kind of unite under the Sabine king, a guy called Tatius, um, because the majority of the women were stolen from his city. And they gather together and they um, sort of start to march on Rome. And so I'm just at a junction. I think I can push out. No. Yes. Okay, we're all clear. So um, he is leading the charge, and they get to Rome, and they notice outside the high city walls is a young girl. Now this girl is a priestess. She's, uh, she's doing a religious job. She's collecting water for a ritual, and she's called Tarpeia. Tarpeia is a Roman girl, and she 
allows the Sabine warriors into the city of Rome. So it seems on the surface that this Roman girl who's let the enemies in is a traitor to the city. She's a traitor to Rome because she has put her people in danger by letting enemies inside the city gates. But Livy digs in a little bit to her motivations. It's really important to know why she might have behaved in that way um, before we condemn her as a traitor. Because uh, you can only be a traitor if you betray your city. But what if she wasn't betraying the city? And he, he suggests um, a couple of different possible reasons. He says, reason number one, she made a bargain with the Sabine men. And she said, oh, if you give me what you've got on your left arms, um, by which she was referring to beautiful golden rings and bracelets, then I'll let you in. And then she'd be a traitor because her personal greed would have been the motivation for betraying her people. However, that's not the only suggestion he gives. Another suggestion he gives is that she asked to have what they had on their left arms in exchange for being let into the city, by which she was referring to their shields. And Livy says that she understood that she, one girl alone, couldn't stand up against these women, but these, um, these warriors, sorry, these strong men, but what um, she could do would be to disarm them. And so Livy suggests that she tried to take their shields away from them so that when they did get inside, they would be less well defended and the Romans could more easily um, kill them. Now this, if this is true, this is very clever because she's thinking under pressure and she's thinking about what um, she can do to actually help her city rather than to hurt or betray it. Um, and Livy doesn't doesn't uh, tell us which answer is the correct answer. He just says that there are there are these different um, possibilities. Now there's a third idea that's put across in an additional source, a poem by an author called Catullus. He's a Roman poet, Catullus, and he would uh, write love poetry. And he tells this story and mentions that um, Tarpeia saw Tatius, the Sabine king, and was so struck by how handsome he was that she fell in love on the spot and she let him in because she wanted him to marry her. This again would be uh, a case of treason, I think, because it's um, putting her own desires ahead of what is good for her, um, for her state. Um, it, and it would also be another level of betrayal because do you remember how I mentioned that Tarpeia was a priestess? Well, the kind of priestess she was, was a Vestal Virgin, the most important kind of priestess in all of Rome. And one of the things about the Vestal Virgins was they were not allowed ever to lose their virginity. Now, if she has been motivated by feelings of love or even of lust for this uh, foreign king, well then, she's betraying not only her city, but also the gods, because she is angling to get for herself a romantic partner, which goes against her, her vows of chastity. Catullus does say that she behaved in that way. He does 
say that she was a traitor. However, Livy leaves it a bit more grey. He doesn't say for sure which answer is the correct one. Now, whatever her motivations were for doing this, all of the versions say the same thing, that she let the Sabines in and then she was murdered by them. They say that they piled their shields up on top of her and by their combined weight, uh, they crushed her to death. Which is a gruesome end for Tarpeia. Um, the Romans sort of commemorated this event and they named a cliff in the centre of Rome after Tarpeia. They called it the Tarpeian Rock. And the Tarpeian Rock was used for a very particular thing. It, uh, it was used to throw traitors to the city, traitors to Rome, off to their deaths. So it seems I would infer that the majority of Romans regarded Tarpeia as a traitor. Otherwise, they, it's not likely they would have named this rock with this very specific purpose after her. So the Sabines are in the city now. Tarpeia is uh, dead and gone, and the Sabines have occupied the centre of the town in the Forum, which is like the marketplace. It's also where a lot of politics goes on, right in the heart of the city. Um, and a battle commences between the Sabines and the Romans. And it goes on for a while. Um, it's very fiercely fought. People are dying. And then... And then the Sabine women come out of their homes and they intervene in the battle. Now in the ancient world, a battlefield is a very masculine place. It's just for men to fight. And also, um, in ancient Rome, the forum is a very masculine space. It's used for politics, it's used for business, things that are... Um, according to their gender roles, jobs that men do, not jobs that women do. And so these women come out of their homes, typically seen as a more feminine space, into the masculine space. And Livy, in his History of Rome, he says they showed um, manly bravery as well. So these women are kind of um, stepping outside of their gender roles in order to sort out this situation in the way that um, only a man could. And so here we see an example of um, the idea that one's, um, one's sex, one's body, does not dictate all behaviour, does not necessarily dictate one's gender, because here they are doing quite a manly thing according to Roman gender roles. But there is still a femininity to it as well, because they come to the um, forum and they are dressed all in their mourning clothes. Not mourning as in morning afternoon, but mourning as in grief. In the ancient Greek and Roman world, women played an important role in mourning the dead, and they would wear specific clothes, these kind of tattered rags, um, to show that they were in mourning. So they come out in these mourning clothes and they're trying to convey the idea that they are grieving that the battle is going on. They're grieving that their fathers and brothers, but also their new husbands, as apparently they have come to regard their abductors, um, are killing one another. They argue 
which in the ancient Roman world is quite a masculine thing. Using um, speech to persuade people is quite a masculine thing in Rome. They persuade the men that they should stop fighting. They say, if you must fight, you should fight against us, the women, because we are the cause of all of this. They take blame on themselves, even though they were forced to... um, even though they were forced to um, go with the, their abductors. And they also say, if you kill one another, you'll be committing what's called a blood crime. Now, blood crimes were when you kill the member of your own family. And they're saying this because the bonds of marriage that exist between the women and their Roman abductors, but also by this point, Um, A number of them have had children, and so the blood ties through those children and grandchildren uh, bond the men together. And so if they kill one another, they will be uh, guilty of a blood crime, and that is a really serious thing um, that anyone would want to avoid. And their argument is entirely successful. They are able to persuade the men to stop fighting, and in fact, what happens afterwards is the Sabine people and the Roman people decide to merge their peoples together. So they all become Romans, um, and from that point on, Romulus rules alongside Tatius as co-kings. So the women are able to get involved in politics in a way, they're able to broker this sort of um, this peace agreement and really shape the early future of, of Rome as a, as a city, enabling it to continue putting an end to this war and essentially doubling its population, which for a very small city is a very, very good thing. Um, it makes it more likely that the city will survive. So here we see something that we've not really seen in the Greek stories, that women have... Um, albeit in quite a strange way, can have an influence on politics and that they can use their um, intellect and their speech to convince men of a particular course of action. All right, what else can we talk about? Um, Because of that little uh, sort of traffic jam, this is a longer longer podcast than normal, I think I've said most of what I want to say, but I'm sure there's more. There's always more to talk about. Um, So Romulus's wife, um, a woman called Hercilia, she apparently was the one who came up with the idea that Romulus should go and and persuade the women to be happy um, by offering them Roman citizenship and by blaming their parents. And I think this is a lovely example of a um, of the kind of soft power, the kind of influence that a Roman woman might be able to have over her husband. Later on, um, we'll be talking about Roman politics and how one of the ways that women could exert influence in Roman politics was by persuading their husbands. And here we have, in an early myth of Rome, a really good example of this in action. Um, a a very kind of intelligent and persuasive wife being able to persuade her very powerful husband of a particular course of political action. Um, And that's not really something that we see in the Greek myths. That's a bit of a difference there for you. 
Um, what else? What else? Um, so visual representations of Tarpeia, if you ever see it on a coin or in an artwork like a, like a relief sculpture or on a pot, they tend to focus on the moment of her death. Um, quite quite traumatic for her, but it's quite a recognisable image. What you'll normally see is a woman in the process of being buried by, um, being buried by all of these shields. Uh, so if you are given an unseen source in an exam paper, that's what to look, what is, that is what you should look out for. Um, these kind of circular objects kind of piling up around a young woman. Um, and in these images, she tends to be quite still. She doesn't really look like she's struggling. And we could interpret that as being she is so overpowered by all of the warriors who are attacking her that she can't stand a chance. It could also be interpreted as a sign that she is accepting her fate. She is, um, she is um, kind of realizing that what she has done is um, a traitorous act, and so she's um, accepting that that is um, that is kind of what she what she deserves, um, which could be the Romans telling us how they feel about traitors. Um, another issue I guess you could talk about with the Sabine women is the idea of them being um, rather selfless. So the women um, who intervene in the battle at the end of the story, they are putting themselves in direct danger. They're going out from their homes and they're going onto the battlefield. They could well die on that battlefield and yet they are acting in a selfless way because they want to um, stop the war, prevent any, any bloodshed, um, and they want to unite the two peoples. And that can be contrasted within this same myth, Tarpeia, who, if she was trying to secure a bribe from the Sabines in order to, um, be allowed to let them in to the city, then um, we could say, well, she's the exact opposite of that. She is selfless. And what what kind of reward do they get? Well, Tarpeia is killed, whereas the Sabine women are thanked, congratulated, and in fact, Livy tells us that they are commemorated because certain of the women have um, different areas of Rome named after themselves. So this could be a way of communicating an element of female virtue in the Roman mindset. Um, a virtuous thing is to be selfless, and if you are selfless, then you will be rewarded. Um, however, if you are selfish, then you will be punished as Tarpeia herself was. So I'm nearly pulling up to school, nearly, nearly finished uh, with today's recording, but just to um, hit again on the key points, um, Romulus needs the women because of their ability to bear children, and that is something that has come up in the Pandora story as well. Pandora brings with her, and with her female body, the ability to generate new life um, after she releases the evils from her jar. 
we get as well the issue that beauty is very important because the most beautiful of the Sabine maidens were abducted and taken for the Roman noblemen to marry. So they um, are kind of the more important people in Roman society, so they should have the, the quote-unquote best uh, wives, and those were seen as being the most beautiful. Um, the women are... Um, sort of passive in that they are abducted by the men and then the uh, their families try to come and um, release them whilst the women are, are kind of just being quite quite passive and yet we see them also being very active we see them at the end of the story in the battle taking to the battlefield in order to um, put an end to things and we also see the women um, despite the fact that they're not given very much control over their own bodies about whether or not they're going to be abducted, about whether or not they're going to be forced to marry um, a Roman stranger, we see that they can have a tremendous amount of influence over the state, over the body politic, um, when they are able to put an end to the war. Right, so I'm pulling in to my parking space now, and thanks to that traffic, you've got a little bit longer podcast this morning, and um, also thanks to that traffic, I need to run to registration. So thanks very much for tuning in, and I will speak to you all next time.